137 p.m.'s Live from the Bar Cart. A look into the style, culture, strength, and grind of the modern-day man. Matt Belknap, thanks for joining us on Live from the Bar Cart. Uh, very happy to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Um, so really excited to talk to you. Uh, in my research, uh, I noticed you're kind of a, a jack-of-all-trades. You've you've done so much and kind of all over the place. Um, yeah. And I'd love to hear the story of how you got into these things. I mean, I, I, I saw, like, obviously entrepreneur, uh, comedian, producer, podcast host, all these different things. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about the beginning. Like, um, w- where are you from? How did you get started in this? And uh, what were your aspirations? Uh, I, I'm from upstate New York and, and uh, Western Mass, like right on the, the state line there, both sides of it. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, I got started, I, I just wanted to make movies uh, for uh, most of my life. And I went to film school um, to, to learn how to do that. And um, so I, right out of college, I came to Los Angeles with the idea of trying to be a screenwriter. And um, I got a Obviously, if you want to be in movies, you got to go West Coast, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Either that or New York. But at the time, it seemed like uh, West Coast was the place to be. So, um, yeah, I got out here as quickly as I possibly could and um, got a job reading scripts, um, which is kind of a freelance job where uh, production companies um, and agencies need someone to read the stuff that gets submitted to them before they... Uh, you know, before they read it, or or in most cases they don't read it because most of them are bad, and so they just <laughs> have someone like me read it and say this is bad, and then they don't have to waste their time with it. Uh, but they need to know a little bit about the story, so I would read it, summarize the the plot, and then write a page of notes on why it was in most cases bad. Uh, but that was that was sort of I thought that would be a good way to learn more about uh, screenwriting and what works and what doesn't. But I also thought it would give me the free time to work on my own stuff because it was freelance and it mostly I could work from home and um, you know it gave me free time to do other stuff it's uh, kind of amazing it, so when someone hands in a screen a screenplay yeah um, to what I guess to an agent or to a production company to get made mm-hmm. so the the person that they're actually they want to read it never even reads it <laughs> they well it depends it depends on the writer and it depends on the agent or production company if it was if, if you're an established writer then your agent will definitely read it and they will then send it out and if if you're a, a known quantity then people will have to read it but um but if you are an unknown and you're just submitting to try to get representation or if you're trying to sell a script uh and they don't know who you are they're not going to waste their time because <laughs> it you know it takes like an hour or two to read a screenplay uh yeah. they're going to have someone else do that first they have and someone, they hire you to do it yeah, right. And and so there was like an army of 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 readers uh at, at just at the one company. I worked uh for Imagine Entertainment, the Ron Howard and So Brian essentially the, company. the the guys like you that were outsourced are the gatekeepers. Like you were the one that yeah. decided if it got moved up a level to somebody worth reading and, and deciding whether or not to make it. Yes, although it would very quickly if I said something was good and it wasn't, it wouldn't get much farther than the next person up the chain, which is probably right. a story editor or maybe even someone's <laughs> assistant. Like there, there's multiple gatekeepers. It's uh, a really just interesting like, kind of feel. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about that. That's funny. Yeah, it's um, it's a uh, it's you know it's all about a part of the job is just being able to give the executive a sense of what the script is so that they can talk to the agent on the phone and pretend they read it. You know, like they can look at my coverage and say, oh yeah, um, 
we really like this part or, you know, this was interesting, but they, you know, they wanted basically it's, it's all kind of an illusion. Like everyone's pretending they read it. The agent on the other end of the phone probably didn't read it either. So they just read some coverage <laughs> that someone on their end wrote. So it's like two people who don't know what they're talking about, pretending that they know what they're <laughs> talking about. Yeah. So, uh, so, but the, the, the thing about that job was I did it for a, a long time over 10 years. And, um, but I was doing other stuff in the, as I was doing that, but it kind of, had a weird effect on me where I, I stopped um, wanting to be a writer because it kind of made me. It, I saw behind the curtain a little too much, and um, so the futility of it. Yeah, yeah. There's just a you know a lot of um, uh, you just don't. Not, not too many people actually make it in that field, and certainly what I was doing wasn't the path to making it. You know, the people who make it are really good at networking and really. Uh, have connections and and you know and also our salesmen like uh, being a, a professional screenwriter at the high level is basically a sales job you have to be able to go into a room and sell people on you as the talent uh and i wasn't i was an introverted guy and i just what didn't feel uh confident enough to to pull that off so i i but i thought in my naive mind i thought like if i just work really hard at becoming the best writer I can be in my apartment, then my talent will speak for itself. But that's not how Hollywood works at all. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and maybe I didn't have the talent either. So that was also probably another problem that I was struggling with. But w- what happened was I, I had all this free time. And so my energy was being redirected in other places. And one of the places it was redirected was, uh, starting a message board for comedy fans in Los Angeles. Um, because there was a really great alternative comedy scene in the late 90s and, and into the 2000s uh, when I got really into it. Um, and there were a lot of this great is comedians. This a special thing? Yeah, the special, a specialthing.com was a message board. Um, initially started just out of my love of, the, uh, of Tenacious D because I was a huge Tenacious D fan. Oh, and, dude, the um, D. I love the yeah, D. The D, yeah. So I like I, that was I started the board for I named the board a special thing because it's one of their songs and uh, right. and so I I it was really just a place to, for Tenacious D fans to gather because there was really nowhere for them to do that at that time. Uh, this was like two thousand one, but uh, but when they sort of when Jack Black became a movie star, they stopped uh, doing as much touring and they weren't really that active. So it sort of morphed into just people talking about comedy that was sort of in that world, like, uh, Mr. Show and, uh, the people who had been on Mr. Show, like people like Patton Oswalt and Sarah Silverman and, um, Paul F. Tompkins. And so it, it just became, yeah, Bob, obviously Mr. Bob, Show was Bob Odenkirk and Dave Cross. It's right. funny to see like those guys have, it's funny that like those guys were birthed in the comedy scene to see someone like Bob Odenkirk on, um, Better Call Saul and become like a real dramatic actor. It's like yeah, to see it's the metamorphosis, crazy. and he's great at it. He's amazing at it. He is. And it's just yeah. like wh- where 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 the roots are, you know, in, in comedy and where they go. It's it's really interesting. Totally. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it's that adage of like, if you can do comedy, you can do almost anything because oh, that's yeah. the hardest totally. thing. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So it just turned into a discussion of all things alternative comedy, I guess. And um, I was going. There was a a weekly uh, show in L.A. at a place called M Bar. Uh, that Scott Ackerman and BJ Porter started. They were writers and performers on Mr. Show. And um, it was called Comedy Death Ray. It morphed into, years later, it became Comedy Bang Bang, which then became the podcast and the TV show and all that stuff. But it started out as a weekly live show where all these great comedians uh, who were in LA because they were working in television and film, but they still were doing stand-up, but not really touring. Mostly they were just like, 
doing local shows and i was like man these guys this is such great stuff and nobody outside of la is able to experience it so i started writing um basically recaps of those shows and um that this the site kind of became known for these recaps of of local shows because those guys had fans all over the world from mr show and and from other stuff they had done and so people who couldn't be at the show would just want to read about it and so that that sort of i and then the and then oh, this is as like a before weird youtube and all that was it before yeah, yeah. capturing this stuff exactly oh, so yeah kinda like the beginning of it all yeah so it was it was 2001 2002 um and actually i think comedy death race started in 2002 um so uh that sort of uh, the weird byproduct of that actually was that the comedians started reading my recaps and became aware of who i was um or at least my my persona online and started talking about the website on stage which is a very weird <laughs> sort of meta <laughs> experience yeah um so but i ended up becoming friends with a lot of them over time and uh and then uh, because when podcasting came along, it just kind of was a natural, I, I started interviewing people for the site, like doing transcript, uh, like written interviews. And when podcasting came along, it just made more sense to record those and put them out as a podcast. And, um, and that's, uh, that led to, so I did a, a, there was an AST radio podcast that was just interviews with people like Patton and, and, uh, Paul F. Tompkins and, and Bob Odenkirk. And, um, mm-hmm. and then, uh, and then one of the interviews was with a comedian named Jimmy Pardo, and I was a huge fan of his. And uh, he was doing a, a monthly talk show, a, like a live talk show at the UCB Theater. And I thought that would be a great podcast, too. So I, I was just looking for any way into, like, how could I work with these these people that I thought were so great. And Did you ever try he, it yourself? Try to do some stand-up yourself? <laughs> yeah, I did. I, I did stand-up. I did open mics, uh, like, Basically, the year I turned 30, I was like, I'd been writing about comedy online a lot and uh, I was sort of in the world of it. And I felt like I, I don't want to be that guy that's writing about it without ever having tried it. So I started doing open mics and um, and pretty quickly discovered that I didn't have any passion for it. Like it just wasn't. It's it, not like, I mean, like you said, comedy is hard, man. It is. Not yeah. Easy, especially to do it on stage in front of people. That yeah. is, uh, I have a lot of respect for those guys. It's it's not an easy thing to do. It's almost well, like the, you really have to hate hate yourself <laughs> in, front of, in front of a crowd and like kind of go through that uh, uh, almost torture. If like if it's if it, I mean everybody in the beginning sucks, you know, but to get to that yeah. level of the greats, but it's it's uh, it's not a, definitely a, it's not an easy thing to do. Well, you have to be able to. In some cases, it may be that that the person hates themselves. But it, you, yeah. it, it's it, the thing that I lacked was like the um the desire like you really have to have a burning desire to do it in the face of apathy and in the face of failure um because most people would do it and they would be like why am i doing this i'm not getting anything out of it like when i i did it and most open mics at the lowest level you're just performing for like seven other people who are waiting to go up there's no actual audience it's just other uh, aspiring comedians and so they're not listening or if they're listening they're not really laughing every once in a while maybe people would laugh but um, you know, it, it's not a it's not a performer friendly environment. So you're kind of just getting up there to sort of try things and see how it feels to do it. And mm-hmm. um, I think the people who who 
pursue it uh, long term, they get something out of that. They're like, even that terrible version of comedy of stand up for them is enough to keep them going and com- coming <laughs> back and doing it again and again and, and wanting to get better. And like I had no I didn't really feel anything. I didn't feel bad about it and I didn't feel good about it. like sometimes I would get laughs and sometimes it would go well and I didn't feel it didn't make me feel anything. I wasn't like, oh, that's the good stuff. Give me more. Like I just was like, nah, OK, so that went well. But who cares? And then when it went badly, I was like, also, who cares? <laughs> like, It doesn't really mean right. anything. So I may have been too old. I may have been like past the point where you're like really hungering for some uh, sense of belonging or acceptance. Um, because right. like I think most people go through that at a younger age and some people never get out of that stage. But uh, but for me, I was like, yeah, I already have friends in comedy and I already have a community of people that I feel like I'm a part of. And this isn't this isn't giving me anything that I don't already have. So I, after about six months, I just stopped doing it. You're almost kind of like a documentarian of this, of the comedy scene. It the, sounds like you yeah, were more in love definitely. with the scene and the comics. Yeah. That's than you were of that, actually getting up there and doing it. Definitely. That that's, that's what I felt like my role was for a while was like, I'm, I'm capturing this moment for posterity because it's, I think it's great and important and it's not, no one else is doing this. Like it, there's no, you know, like Ken Burns is not rolling film on this, <laughs> this right. situation that I'm in the middle of. So why don't I write it down and 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 record it? And and that's actually how uh, I started a record label based on you know that being in this world too. My friend Ryan and I, uh, I met this this guy Ryan McManaman, just going to the comedy shows all the time, and he was a big fan too. And we were both like, man, we should be. Someone should be capturing this, and someone should be putting this this stuff out because it's great stuff. And, and no you one... release comedy albums on this label? Yeah, this so is the same. It's the same name, right? It's uh, yeah, AST uh, Records, right. um, still going strong today. And um, you know, we just we just ended up making records with all of our friends and people that we liked a lot in in this uh, in the comedy world. Like uh, again, Paul F. Tompkins. Uh, mm-hmm. We've done like four or five albums with him. Jen Kirkman. Um, we did end up doing a, an album with Bob Odenkirk, actually, <laughs> which was oh, really? a surreal experience. Um, and uh we did a record with pat oswalt uh, a couple of years ago which was which was great and and um yeah so it's just that's just been a fun uh, it, you know the the everything things have changed so much that those those people don't need us anymore to get their stuff out there's a million different ways right. to get it out now but in 2005 uh there was no uh like online infrastructure for them to like put up put out their own stuff and right. we felt like we could help them just with the very basic like record it put it on a CD, make the cover art and, you know, print a thousand copies and sell them online and give them copies to sell at their shows. And, um, we felt like we were providing like this very basic service for people who weren't like really, they weren't looking for that kind of thing themselves. Cause they probably had other, they had careers in film or, or television, and, but they still loved stand up, and we felt like, well, people should be able to hear that if they're fans of you. They should be able to hear your stand up, and so we, we, uh, you know, we we were happy to be a part of that uh, ecosystem, and and it's still we're still doing that today. With with you know, we try to look for young artists and people who are coming up and don't have a, a you know, people with a big name can go to Netflix or they can go to Comedy Central Records or, or any number of record labels to to make stuff, but we're just still in the LA scene looking for people who, uh, who excite us. Oh, cool. And how does, so you said, uh, you had met Jimmy Pardo. How did it, how did it come together that you guys did never not funny? How did that come about? Uh, never not funny was the result of me saying you should turn that live talk show, uh, at the UCB into a podcast. Cause I can very easily just record it. Uh, and then, you know, we can put it up. So he was like, that's kind of interesting. 
Um, I basically cold called him. I mean, I had interviewed him a couple times, but I was like, I can, I was like, can I take you to lunch? I want to, you know, pitch this idea to you. So we went to lunch and I said, why, you know, I, why don't I record that show? And then we put it out and he was like, okay. He wasn't like super excited about the idea, but he was sort of interested. So I recorded one, we listened back to it and he was like, yeah, I don't really want to put this out. Like it feels like something that's meant to be a live thing. Uh, and, but he's like, but when we did when he's like when i did your podcast and you came to my house and and we sat at at my dining room table and talked that was fun so maybe we could do something like that as a podcast so i was like yeah that that'd be great and so i we started doing that and and that was uh 12 years ago uh, this past april and we've been doing that uh well starting we used to do it once a week now we do it twice a week uh for 12 years that's amazing, and I mean, you're, it's one of the more popular podcasts out there. Um, it's and nowadays, um, you know, this is a great point to talk about podcasts. I mean, podcasts are blowing up. Everyone and their mothers got one. It's funny, <laughs> yeah. like there was there was a time where podcasts were really popular for a while, and then it kind of died down. Mm-hmm. And now it's having this huge resurgence, and it doesn't seem to be stopping. Everybody's getting into it, and it's becoming very popular. Um, I'd love to get your take on on the space because I also know you you co-founded Art Nineteen, the the hosting platform, correct? Yeah. Uh, and um, that's where where our podcasts live and a lot of podcasts oh, cool. live. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast space. Yeah, well, uh, I can talk more about Art Nineteen too if you want. But yeah, um, for sure. I, I I we got into it at a time when it felt very um, almost embarrassing to be doing. Like Jimmy was, you know, a working. A touring comedian who had been on television he'd hosted a couple of game shows and um some other stuff and so it was like it was almost like doing public access in when we started in, in <laughs> 2006 kind of it, yeah. yeah it was it was like no, first of all it, it, no one really knew what a podcast was but so if you told them they'd be like what is that and then you'd be like it's like a radio show but on the internet but you download it and you listen to whatever you want and it just got very complicated to tell people what it was <laughs> but also if they did understand what it was, almost everybody in the space that were hobbyists, basically like there weren't really professional broadcasters in the space at that time, other than like Ricky Gervais was the big kind of, uh, guy because he had been doing a radio show in, in England and they just took the radio show and put it in, it made a podcast out of it, which right. was brilliant. Um, because no one had done that. And so that's, I mean, that was the secret to his success as a podcaster was like, that was already a successful radio show and they just put it on the internet so the rest of the world could get it. And with the success of The Office, everyone was like, who's Ricky Gervais? And they wanted to hear more from him. And so it was great. And and that really did inspire us. Uh, uh, Jimmy and I both listened to his show um, before we started ours and thought, oh, well, if he can do that, then why can't we do this too? And but we we were lucky that we were one of the first shows uh, in America that had a professional comedian and a professional TV personality as its host, and so we stood out um, amongst all the kind of I, I don't want to say amateur as a derogatory term, but just people who weren't doing it for money; they were just doing it for fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we got noticed very quickly. And Apple it was it was right at it was a, it was the year after Apple had added. The, the podcast um, app, yeah. The, well, not the app, but this was before apps even. But this was like in in 2005 they added the podcast directory to the iTunes software. So like uh, iTunes, wow. iTunes used to just be like for your music, you would put your MP3s on it, and you you would burn CDs to MP3 and listen to them in iTunes, and then and then put that on your iPod by syncing it. So crazy convoluted by modern standards but, <laughs> right. but uh but then in, in 2005 they decided why don't we also allow people to download podcasts in this 
program and then they can sync their iPod and ha- listen to podcasts on their iPod. So uh, that was a huge moment for podcasting because then it gave it more mainstream awareness. Right, and much more accessible. Yeah, and, and for them it was like, it was a free, it was a source of almost limitless free content. So it made sense on both sides, like all the uh, content creators were suddenly given this new audience and uh, and Apple was given millions of hours of, of free content that they could promote to but just get, give people another reason to buy an iPod I guess but uh, so yeah we were we came in the wake of that and uh, the people who were that you know Apple had like one or two people I think working in the podcast they had a you know they had the iTunes division of 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 Apple and then within that there was like you know two dudes who would listen to podcasts and and right. recommend stuff and 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 feature things and so the uh, a guy named um uh Scott uh wow why am I blinking on Scott's name uh oh that's horrible that I can't remember Scott's <laughs> last name right now anyway uh Scott noticed us I think a friend of ours uh, who was also doing podcasts um Jesse Thorne who who started his own network um Maximum Fun he told Scott about us and um, Scott listened to us and became a fan and he put, he featured us on iTunes and that gave us like at, almost immediately gave us an audience that we otherwise would not have had. And then Jimmy's, you know, had some fans from doing stand up and being on TV. So they came aboard when they figured out how to get a podcast. <laughs> and uh, so we really had a leg up. But then, uh, as you alluded to, there's been these peaks and valleys in podcasting. Um, Scott Simpson, bam, Scott Simpson. <laughs> Sorry, <Right>. Scott. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, we were in it for a couple years uh, and nothing was happening. And it was like, uh, are we going to just keep doing this for free and, and feel like uh, like Wayne and Garth in the basement? Or <laughs> are we going to uh, find try to find a way to make money doing this? You know, how do we, we, we just felt like, I think uh, especially Jimmy felt like I can't indefinitely do this for, for nothing. Like, even though it's fun, we were having fun. We wouldn't have done it if it, if we weren't having fun, right. obviously, but it just felt like we have to make something of this. Uh, and we can't keep, we can't wait around forever to, for podcasts to happen because all that entire time, everyone was like, podcasting is about to blow up. And we're like, wow, this is great. We're in early on this. And then right. it just wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. So in 2008, two years in, we decided to start our own subscription model, which meant we would charge people. This is like uh, unthinkable at the time. Uh, we we decided we were we are going to charge people a subscription fee to get our podcast. We had an we had built up an audience, and uh, so we found a way. Well, first, we used a, a site that had very rudimentary tools for doing this, and that didn't work great. So we ended up hiring a guy to build like a PayPal based system for selling. Um, what it amounts to a pa- uh, a password protected a paywall, RSS. basically, right? Yeah, it's a paywall that uh, it, you ha- you pay, and then you get uh, access to y- your your password logs you into a uh, an RSS feed that only you mm-hmm. can get into. So, um, yeah, we did that, and we felt like if we even get like ten percent of our listeners to do this, it, the 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 premise was it'll be twenty bucks for six months of episodes that's you know um let's see uh, weekly episodes yeah there's 26 episodes for 20 bucks and you and the the first 20 minutes of every episode would still be free on itunes just so people wouldn't forget that we existed Mm -hmm. um we we converted 25 percent of the audience right out of the gate and so we were like oh my god this is way beyond what we expected and it became i was able to quit my reading job uh reading scripts i was able (laughs) to make this my full-time job and um 
at, like it was yeah so it was pretty amazing to see like I, you know i know a few people have had this experience of like launching something on the internet where it's everything just works through paypal and when you look in paypal and you suddenly see like the dollar amounts and you're like well, how is this possible <laughs> like i just clicked a button and now there's like thousands of dollars in my paypal account uh it's it's surreal but it was very exciting and um so we did yeah we just basically did a subscription model for years um and then unfortunately the the, the downside of that was r- almost like a year maybe two years after we made that decision is when the first boom happened where um you know adam carolla got into podcasting mark maron started uh comedy bang bang got going all these people yeah joe rogan we all these people that we knew were um were getting into the game and getting way more listeners than us because they were free and suddenly there was a new audience that hadn't been there when we were doing it initially so we had to watch them sort of eclipse us in terms of popularity but we were also able to um you know make a living doing it which is very nice and and i i don't think i would trade it because we sort of uh i mean it it literally changed my life um (laughs) i was able to have a a, do this as a job instead of doing a job that was kind of sucking my soul away (laughs) so uh so yeah then eventually we switched like in 2014 i think we we uh, we joined the Earwolf Network, um, which, which Scott started with Jeff Ulrich, and we had known those guys forever. Um, and we we basically decided we'll we'll do one free episode a week uh, with Earwolf, and then we'll keep our subscription model going, but make it a second episode only for subscribers for paying subscribers. And uh, and we do video every week too, so every episode is available to the subscriber uh, for in audio and video formats. And a lot of right. people, turns out, actually like watching it on their smart TVs or their phones or tablets or whatever. So um, that's been a kind of a cool side thing that um, that people, I think, enjoy and find unique and, and cool about it. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, R19 when did, was uh, in the midst of, R19 like, basically two you, years after we switched to the pay format with Never Not Funny, I was just seeing all these other guys who I knew from comedy getting into podcasting and I realized that there was really wasn't a good infrastructure in place for professionals to publish podcasts and actually make money doing it. Like I, I felt like there's, there's basic hosting platforms that you pay them, you pay them some amount of money and then you just put the files up and and it goes into iTunes and that's it. But I kind of felt like there should be a, a, a system in place if other people want to do what we did where you can charge a subscri- subscription fee or, you know, advertising was starting to get going at that time. It was sort of in its infancy podcast advertising. Um, we had tried to make that work before we went to subscription and, and there was just no infrastructure and no interest from the buyers because no one knew what a podcast was. But, um, but yeah, so I, I, my friend, Sean Carr, who I, uh, it was a high school friend of mine, right. um, was kind of looking for a new venture. He had been doing uh, post-production for independent film and um, we had started going on daily hikes to get in shape in uh, Runyon Canyon here in Los Angeles. And we were talking about our problems. And I was like, man, it's just really hard for podcasters to make money. And he was like, well, maybe we could build something that would solve that problem. And so we started trying to figure out what that would be and what it would look like. And that was a, an incredibly long and, and arduous uh, task to get that business off the ground because for years it was just us pitching to people, pitching to investors, pitching to podcasters, trying to convince people that this is something that would be great and, and would be, would be helpful to, and, and, and lucrative to, to everybody. And, uh, we met, you know, just like any business thing, we met with a lot of resistance and there were a lot of, uh, false starts and, 
Um, but yeah, I think what, what was it? Maybe around 2016 right. is when it finally sort of, well, one, we were sort of on the, on the verge of collapse when, um, when serial happened and that was, uh, like you said, another, uh, boom. Yeah. Another boom in the podcast, uh, uh, story. Um, when, when serial came out, Surgeons. there was just another huge wave, another huge influx of, of, uh, interest in podcasting and suddenly investors wanted in now like where they hadn't before like people would just look at us funny when we started pitching a podcast platform prior to that but once serial was out there and it was you know there were articles in the new york times about it people were like oh yeah i've heard of podcasting that's cool then suddenly there was like a a a new level of interest so we were able to raise enough money to to keep the lights on and build something that we could get into beta and um yeah and then just started you know begging everyone we knew and, and even people we didn't know who had a podcast to uh, to use us and um and i'm no longer involved in the day-to-day of art 19 it's it's like a you know it's a big tech company that's based in in oakland now but um but yeah i, I was it was really just it was born out of my needs as a podcaster and um and and sean ran with it and uh he's done a great job so it's it's really exciting it's one of the better platforms uh, out there, oh, in my opinion. You know, because um, I've been doing uh, broadcast for like twenty years. Mm-hmm. And I've been, mostly, my, my started in radio. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, the recent resurgence of podcasting is everybody's kind of pivoting in this direction. And mm-hmm. so we so we we were looking for our needs at a lot of different hosting companies, um, but R nineteen was uh, a, a lot more robust in in the analytics and in you know dynamic ad insertions and things like that. Yeah. So, kudos cool thanks uh, yeah kudos. yeah it's, it took a long time to get there like you know like i said we started sure. with this idea of like we were gonna like do um h- handle merchandising for people and like we were we wanted to be a one-stop shop like everything you could possibly need to monetize your podcast like if you want to sell t-shirts we could do that for you if you want to make a subscription plan we can do that if you want to advertise we'll do the advertising so, but over time you realize you need to focus um, if you want to be successful and the thing that differentiated us when we were at this like very critical point in time was that nobody else was doing dynamic ad insertion. And, um, we have this genius engineer, uh, Johannes Vetter, who, uh, you know, was he, he and his team were able to, you know, figure out how to make that work. And, um, and it, and it set us apart, you know, people were like, wow, this is, this could be a game changer for, uh, selling ads in back catalog of shows or just refreshing right. ads and, you know, uh, doing limited run ads so that you're not like wasting inventory or selling, you know, not getting the most bang for your buck when you sell uh, a space or, or a, a sell a slot. So yeah, it was, um, that, that was all those guys. Like they, they really have done an incredible job. And as a podcaster, I'm, I'm grateful too. Cause you know, I, my show's on there too. <laughs> <laughs> Where did the name art 19 come from? Um, yeah, man, we worked, we workshopped that to death. We were, we were bouncing all over the place with different ideas that I forget who came up with it. It may have actually been someone Sean knew in, in Hollywood, like a, an agent or somebody, I think, uh, kind of created a, or no, maybe someone else created a list. I think actually one of our board members who is an, an ad guy, Teddy Lynn, I think maybe came up with a list of names and that was one of them. And then this agent at CAA, I, I think was like, that's the name. And the, 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 the origin of the name was article 19 is in the UN charter. It's, it's the article in the UN charter that, um, that designates freedom of speech. So the idea was that, uh, podcasting allows like complete freedom of speech and we wanted to sort of 
represent uh, that ideal for our customers, I guess. Um, it's 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 kind of meant to be one of those names that nobody questions or thinks about what it means. <laughs> but, and it just it <laughs> also starts with an A, so it, it's listed like you know first <laughs> alphabetically for a lot of the SEO, time. SEO, right? It came up. On yeah, top. yeah. So <laughs> so it, it has all those functions, but it but yeah, it, it's a bit obscure, and but for whatever reason. Uh, somebody somewhere was like, "That's the one," and Sean was like, "Cool, that guy thinks it's good, so let's go with that." And and I, I wasn't like totally sold on it, but I realized that like most things, once you once something has a name, you just don't think about what it means; you just accept it for what it is. So. Right. It's funny, you know, po- podcasting, like we said, is a it's is blowing up. There's um, I mean, a lot of talent agencies are are creating special divisions mm-hmm. just for podcasting, creating like talent around podcasting and. Um, t- do you think that it's becoming oversaturated? I mean, the data coming back right now is like, it's still very low. It's, I mean, mm-hmm. a good amount of Americans know what a podcast is. And those that do listen to podcasts are very dedicated. It's a very intimate relationship between the hosts and the audience. That's why conversions are usually good with like a large audience. Like advertisers realize that people who listen to, podcast, to podcasts spend money and like are, are yeah. uh, you know, are dedicated. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is becoming very popular and you know, uh, everybody who's got one is trying to find ways on how to build the audience and, and, and cr- you know, in, increase the listenership. Um, do you think it's oversaturated? <laughs> I, I do. Well, I don't think it, it's it's a totally different mindset. You know, a lot of times people think of it in the same terms that they used to think of or still think of uh, television or radio. Um, but, of course, those uh, media have limited bandwidth and, and podcasting doesn't. There can there can be a million podcasts. There can be five million podcasts. There can be a hundred million podcasts. And they don't all necessarily uh, succeed in terms of, it depends on what your definition of success is. But um, but what, what it's great at is filling in little gaps uh, where uh, mainstream or, or, you know, broad uh, media can, can kind of lose uh, people because they're trying to appeal to a, a wide swath of of, uh, of listeners or viewers. Uh, I, I think what podcasting is is doing now is like finding those nooks and crannies where like, hey, nobody's doing this, and then you find your audience. And what's great is you can monetize a, a rail uh, in in the grand scheme of things a pretty small number of people. You know, I, I now I always forget the name of this book because I've never read it, but people have said this to me a lot: is that there's the book about I think it's called A Thousand Fans or something, and it's the idea that a band can make a living if they can just get a thousand dedicated fans who will buy everything right. that they put they in. They can target that one small group of people. And podcasting is the same way. If, if you can find if you can uh, build up a, a group of one thousand people who are willing to buy your t-shirt or you know pay for your uh you know your patreon or donate to your patreon or whatever then you're probably going to succeed and so that's it just sort of redefines what success means in uh in, in broadcasting i guess uh, but yeah i mean it's harder it's definitely harder to make a big splash i mean i remember there were there was a time when we would book someone famous and it would be like oh my god they got conan o'brien on a podcast like that's insane and now it's like well conan o'brien probably has a podcast (laughs) like like everybody has a podcast it's not it's not noteworthy i mean maybe the last case of that was when Marin got barack obama because that was like whoa the president I mean that that you can't go bigger than that. So it's that was kind of the end of that arms race of like getting big names. And then at a certain point, people stopped thinking about podcasts as being any different from any other outlet. So it wasn't like, whoa, like 
how did this person end up on a podcast? It was like, yeah, of course that person's on a podcast. They're promoting something and that's the same as going on late night television or, or whatever. So, right. Uh, yeah. It's another outlet for an audience. And that's, that's what, uh, you know, I'm learning in our, in our, in our, from our side, you know, trying to monetize and trying to get advertisers and sponsors and things like that. Uh, the next step is really just someone needs to develop uh, more robust analytics that can track time spent listening mm-hmm. and track demographics and all yep. that because the, the major advertisers are at the door and they want to yep. be in this because they know that this is this is there's tons of money mm-hmm. here but they just need that that you know uh reason to do it to they can monitor Absolutely. what's happening yeah yeah and that's that's something that like we, you know with art 19 when i was still working full-time on that uh we talked about that constantly is like you know podcasting was really lagging behind streaming audio and streaming video like you know youtube figured it out spotify figured it out and pandora figured it out and podcasting just didn't have the same analytics to um get the advertisers sold on the space and in some cases it i mean it definitely is smaller like the, the, the audience if you look at the numbers for like how many people use spotify or pandora it's way bigger than the, the podcast audience but like you said, I think there's a there's a lean in quality to podcasting, and and there's a there's a type of person who listens to a podcast that's more valuable, frankly, and and that's that's sure. been a long process trying to convince advertisers that that's the case. But they're starting to see over the last few years. I think they've seen the results, and more people. I mean, look, there's a there's a whole subgenre of companies that have succeeded, in part due to recognizing the power of, of podcast advertising companies like Harry's razors and Casper mattresses. Right. And, um, yep. I mean, Squarespace, Squarespace and, audible, like they, yeah. obviously they advertise all over the place, not just podcasts, but I think they've probably gotten a lot of bang for their buck in putting money in, into podcasting because people who listen to podcasts aren't just, it's not just background noise to them. They're actually paying exactly. attention much more engaged. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's, that's an ongoing thing, but as it grows, and I, I think it, it will continue. You know, th- I always think about like my kids are six and nine years old. They will grow up in a world where podcasting is no different than the radio. They don't, they won't see it differently. Whereas you and I probably still hold on to some notion that like there's more legitimacy somehow to something that's being beamed out over an antenna or through a satellite. But to them, it's just all content and so they don't care and the as those as, as as that generation grows up and become when they become consumers and and they're in the work uh place and uh, uh you know making money and spending money then uh the podcast space will just grow uh even without any effort but i also think there's a lot of effort in a lot of different places to um to grow it and and to market it better because it's it's a tough it's it's that's one of the big challenges that that i've dealt with for years is like how do you market the medium when it's kind of it's not just a a push of a button on your dashboard you know it's a little bit more work oh for sure yeah i mean the way people consume the way people consume podcasts is much different from the way people consume a lot of other content i think like we live in a world that's very um visually obsessed Mm -hmm. so it's an instagram world i feel a facebook world where you know uh, you push you just it's like the 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 uh, the time it takes to consume the content and then uh i guess regurgitate what you feel about it is so instantaneous so someone puts a picture up on instagram i automatically like it i give them that Mm -hmm. like and that's a view that they get right then and there whereas for podcasting someone has to not only find my podcast but they got to press play and they got to sit through the whole thing and so it's a it's a much more it's a bigger ask 
ask of of an audience. And the, but when you do get them, you get them for 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 I guess for life. Yeah, you get them, I mean, it, you've got them much in some cases. That's much stronger hold on them. Absolutely, you know? yeah. I mean, I, I think I hear over and over again from listeners that, and and just from other podcasters sharing their experience with with fans too, that uh, the people who listen to these shows uh, weekly they feel like. Uh, they're like that we're their friends like that we're, we're basically it's like an intimate relationship because they hear us talking Definitely. about our lives and it's a kind of it's a one-sided conversation but they still it's just over that over time i think you know people have had that experience with howard stern or you know or with ricky gervais's podcast but um but it's happening in all these different pockets all over the place with podcasting where there's like you know just small pockets of fans of of just individual shows that um they, you know, they're bonded, uh, and it is. I do think, in some ways, it does feel like a lifelong thing. I mean, I, people must drop out, and other people come in all the time. But, uh, but yeah, they're, they're, that's like that's prime. Uh, I want to say prime real estate uh, for an advertiser to to have to be able to tap into that uh, some a, a relationship that that's deep. That's that deep. Yeah, it's a devoted relationship. Agreed, hundred percent. Yeah. Um. So, what other other is is never not funny your main thing right now? What are you working on right now? That, that yeah, uh, <clears throat> never not funny t- takes up a lot of my time. Um. It's it. We've done. We've you know we're we're just always looking for ways to keep it um fresh and and like grow it. We're we not you know we're not like um. We, I don't think we have any delusions about like becoming the next like serial or whatever because you know we're just sort of we are what we are and and it's it's a it's a kind of a niche show it's it's it appeals to a certain type of person but we have this great fan base we do a fair amount of touring we love going out and meeting people and and doing live shows uh, all over the country and um so yeah that that's sort of my that's that's most of my um my day is is working on on never not funny and then the record label Ryan is is sort of in command of that stuff, and I I dip in occasionally to help out. And um, we also Ryan and I produce uh, Doug Benson's podcast, Doug Loves Movies, and um, Greg Proops's podcast, The Smartest Man in the World, which both just came out of working with those guys on records and and knowing them from comedy. And they were, you know, well, actually, Doug came, Doug got in right after Never Not Funny. He started in the fall of two thousand six, and um, and I was just you know there to help him record it but over time those have both become you know businesses unto themselves i guess and but they're they're all they're sort of folded into the record label whereas never not funny is its own entity and um so yeah i i I try to do all that stuff and still um you know pick my kids up from school (laughs) and drop them off in the morning and all that stuff and being a dad is definitely like uh not probably not 50% of my day, but it's, it's, uh, I, I put a lot into that too, because I think that's really important. And it's, um, it's, you know, you only get a certain slice of time to, to be with your kids before they don't want to be with you at all. Right. <laughs> so I'm trying, trying to enjoy that now, uh, while I can. I got two of my one. I got a, I got a four year old and a one year old. And, um, oh, nice. It's amazing, you know. It's I tell everybody, it's like it's equally the most amazing thing, and the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah, because you exactly. know, you come home and you just you're dead, you're exhausted from a long day of work, and they want to play mm-hmm. and they want to do all the stuff, and you just want to be, you know, five minutes to just you know yeah. turn your brain off for a second, but then you know <laughs> yeah. you realize they're not going to want anything to do with you in a couple more years, so you should just really enjoy this. Um, <laughs> and get, yeah, get it's the time it's that you tough. Can. 
yeah when, um, when i'm not when i'm not with them i'm thinking about oh i want to i want to spend more time with them and then when we're all together there's like a moment where you're like oh my god i need a break <laughs> exactly <laughs> it gets that yin and yang that you go back and forth with but uh but you, you know it does get easier as, as you're you're in the thick of it man one yes. and four is crazy yeah, um but yeah me. it definitely yeah. <laughs> definitely gets it gets easier and more fun like as they get older and you can do more stuff and so yeah that's what i'm hoping well matt thank you so much for your time where can uh where can our audience find out more about you? uh nevernotfunny.com is is where to go for for the show obviously it's on apple podcasts and stitcher and all that stuff you're, you can go to earwolf.com uh too and, and find it there um i'm sort of uh i'm taking a break from social media for the most part but i'm i'm, I'm on instagram at matt belknap um belknap with a k silent k in there and uh and yeah that's uh, that's about it i go oh, ast records you can go to astrecords.com if you want to find albums from uh from you know all these great comedians in la who uh i'm lucky to uh to be associated with awesome matt belknap thanks for your time thank you great to talk to you take care This is 1.37 p.m. If you want to own the future, start this minute. Live from the Barkhart is a Gallery Media production.